welcome to Rock and Roll High School. In-depth, personal conversations with the most legendary figures in the history of contemporary music. Come with us as we explore the stories behind the albums and songs that have become the soundtrack of our lives. Here's your host, Pete Ganbar. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Rock and Roll High School. Our guest this week is one of the most successful record producers of the last 40 years, five-time Grammy Award winner Steve Lillywhite. Probably best known for his career-spanning production of U2, Steve's work can be heard on albums by the best of the best, including The Rolling Stones, Dave Matthews Band, Talking Heads, Peter Gabriel, Psychedelic Furs, Fish, XTC, Susie and the Banshees, and many more. Steve also produced one of the most beloved Christmas songs of all time, the UK classic Fairy Tale of New York by the Pogues and Kirsty McCall. In 2012, he was awarded Commander of the Order of the British Empire for his contributions to music. Never content to sit still, Steve currently lives in Indonesia, where he oversees the sales of over one million CDs per month sold at the country's restaurant chain of Kentucky Fried Chicken Restaurants. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Rock and Roll High School. Very happy today to be talking to an old friend of mine who I have not seen in a long time. One of the reasons being that he has moved since the last time I saw him in New York. And Steve Lillywhite, you are now coming to us live from Bali. Yes, I'm, I'm living part of my life in Bali and part of my life in Jakarta, Indonesia. I've been living in Jakarta for the last six years. And Bali, I used to come here for, for holidays. And thanks to the pandemic, terrible thing, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I managed to pick up a property relatively for the price of a small one-bedroom flat on the Upper East Side. Very nice. How do you decide, okay, this month I'm going to be in Bali, this month I'm going to be in Jakarta? How do you decide that? It depends on, I have a job in Jakarta. I'm a sort of A&R man for, for KFC. What KFC does here. Oh, God, I could start the whole thing. KFC is a destination restaurant in Indonesia due to the mostly Muslim population. So there is no pork and there is beef is not beef is such a special occasion. But chicken, you have never tasted chicken like you have tasted chicken here. And KFC is actually better here than it is anywhere else in the world. They've been allowed to slightly tweak the recipe. So they've made it spicy. They serve it with rice. But anyway, so it's a destination restaurant. And my predecessor decided to start bundling CDs with KFC, with the chicken. So I have taken over the company. And basically, I decide which artists get released. And, and before COVID, I was selling, well, two months, I did over a million CDs. But on in average, about 800,000 CDs a month. Well, let's, let's back let's back up for a second because anyone who is listening to this who is not in Indonesia is wondering 
One, why are people still buying CDs? Two, why are they buying them in a KFC? Okay, well, like the rest of the world, record stores closed down. You know, so there were no record stores. And, but technology was a good 10 years behind the West. In fact, what's quite interesting, and which is why my job won't be forever, is that downloads here were completely leapfrogged. There was never a history of downloads. I mean, if you were number one on iTunes in Indonesia with a population of 300 million, you probably sold under a thousand downloads, right? To be number one on the download chart. So it was pointless. You know, it, it, it never made you anything. So, but what they've done now is actually they've leapfrogged to streaming and that is very big. But but a lot of people out in the boondocks and away, they still don't have smartphones and they still have a CD player and they still have a CD player in their car. So it's part still, it's the tradition of owning something, you know, and this won't last for much longer because what, what I've been doing, because even if people have CDs, people are starting to break the album mentality away. It's almost like I'm releasing playlists of greatest. I do deals with all the, the big hits of the moment. Everything I do is local content. And everything's uh, exclusive to the KFC restaurant, right? Yeah, but, but it's only Indonesian content. Right. And for me, it's, it really, you know, before I moved here, I was living in Los Angeles and, and feeling that I needed a new challenge. Music was getting away from me in the West. I knew how everything was made. I knew exactly what was going to happen next in a song. You know, it was all very formulaic to me. No surprises. And, and it, no surprises. And it was weird that when I started, there was very little choice in technology, but everyone made very varied records. And the big dichotomy is now we have as much choice as we want with technology. Technology has given us an incredible choice of plugins, of sound, of grooves, but everyone defaults to roughly the same thing in a lot of ways, you know. So I just wanted, when I came to Indonesia, they don't do verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus, finish. They have different structures of, of, of music. They have different styles of music. And I've, I've really enjoyed it. Do you produce any of these records or are you just the executive now? I mix some of them. I've got a small mixing Pro Tools room here. I make myself available if anyone wants a 66-year-old fucking <laughs> boule, you know. Boule is the word they use for foreigner. Like in Thailand, they call them farang, and in uh, Indonesia, they call them boule. It's a very easy language. So was there more to your leaving L.A. and moving halfway around the world to Indonesia than just being tired of the same old music? No, I think that was it. I was, since 1978, when I had my first hit record in England, I always felt I was sort of, you know, I felt I was making good records and cutting edge records and records that were meaningful. The last thing I wanted to do was to just turn into another guy who was a producer i mean maybe it's a bit arrogant but i felt that i was you know given a good tailwind 
I could make better records than most people. And you, and you did. And, you know, I've sort of proved it for, a, you know, some parts of that time. And I reinvented myself from being the guy who did rock to being the guy who did jam bands and then sort of world music. You know, and I started out with punk. So I'm perfectly happy with what I've done. And I have no real desire. You know, for me, it's my enthusiasm for anything right. that makes me good at it. Because inherently, I, you know, this is called high school, rock and roll high school. I didn't even finish high school, Pete. I never went to college. I started in a studio when I was 17. When I was 23, I was having hit records. So I really learned on the job. So let's go back to when you were 17. So you grew up in Surrey. And like you said, you never finished high school. And you weren't the cool kid. Your name was Lily White. So naturally you got picked on. But you found music. You picked up a bass guitar. and you started enjoying the music thing. Yeah, when I was about 13, I picked up the bass guitar and became obsessed. I used to just sit there playing bass all the time. And for me, I had very little taste. It was all about 10 years after were my favorite band. Okay, kids, 10 <laughs> years after were well known for being in the Woodstock movie and especially well known for just playing fast. And that was it, really. And everyone in the band played fast. And it was blues-based. And, and they were my favorite band. So for me, the faster you played, the better you were. So I got some cool points by being in the local band. And I won an award for being a bass player. And then, but then I, I was told to leave school. And when I left school, my dad was a very... It's a funny story, actually. My dad knew someone who knew someone who got me an interview at the Philips record pressing plant, right? So I just went, my dad came with me and we went to the pressing plant where they literally went pum, pum, and made the records. And I said to the guy, I said, oh, this is good. Have you got any jobs? And he said, well, just because you want to be in the music business, those records could be baked beans. You know, honestly, you are not in the music business here. This is just, I was that dumb, you know, it's like, well, I see records being pressed. That's, you know, that's good enough. That's music business. He said, but we do have a recording studio. I'll plan a visit for you to go to the recording studio to just have a look round. So I went up with my dad to the recording studio and just by luck, the day that I visited the recording studio, one of the assistants decided to leave. And my boss, who was gay, and me, who was a cute 17-year-old, he just liked the idea. So he said, look, I'll give you an interview. He said you needed to, to have passed some O-levels. Oh, it's, it's boring, all that bit. But anyway, I, it was a slight lie. I pretended I'd passed my exams, but actually I hadn't. But, you know, after getting the job and three months in, I was just, you can see by my demeanor now, I'm enthusiastic. I, You're a people person. I'm a people person. And honestly, actually, this is an interesting fact. Of all the producers and the great producers in the world, I would put myself up against anyone as a people person because a lot of great producers are slightly on the spectrum. You know, they're like these real nerds who can't look people in the eye. And, they're... and I think that I've got 
some sort of empathy towards the artist. Like, for instance, let me take an example. Let's say I'm meeting a band for the first time. There are two sorts of producers. The first producer will go, okay, where's the brains? Let's go towards Bono. Bono, right? Let's take, he's the singer. He's, I'll go and get in with him. He's the person I really need to work on. And then, of course, there's me. I do the opposite. I look at the band and I go, who's the guy in the band who's always ridiculed? Who's, you know, there's always one guy, you know, normally the bass player. Who's the one who doesn't have that much confidence in himself? And I'll go to him because I think the ego can look after itself. So I try and bolster up the guy who... So, you know, when they leave the meeting, he goes, hey, Steve Lillywhite was nice, you know, he was really interested in me. Because I've seen these other guys and they're very successful producers, so I would never, ever question them. Because at the end of the day, it's how you get the best record. That's all a producer is. He's responsible for the quality of the products. A lot of people don't realize the psychology that goes into the making of a record and working with a band. So when you're sizing up the people in the band, and I heard a, an interview you did where you talked about certain producers who will come in and fire the drummer right away because he's not a great drummer. But what if it's the drummer who's actually telling the singer that the singer is shit and he's the only one in the band who the singer that. will hear that? Yes, yes. And, and you know what? With technology now, I don't care if you're... You know, you've got to be a relatively good drummer to get your record deal. And these producers are proud. They say it with pride. I had to fire the drummer. Well, fuck off. That, for me, is the, is the you know, because I've seen, I've seen the proof. You look at R.E.M. R.E.M. never had another fucking hit after Bill Berry left the band. I mean, they didn't fire him. He left. But they got the best session guys in the world to come and play but it doesn't matter because every member of a band and this is old school you know nowadays people type records and it's a different world but for your people to learn the idea of the power of a group is quite important and to be able to notice it because it's cyclical you will get a bastardized version of what bands used to be like coming back I'm sure it is, you know, and the idea of being able as an A&R person to to notice that strength of the unit, you know, is very important. Very important. Sometimes the psychology isn't really given the due that it needs because, you know, these are human beings. These are not ball bearings. There's emotion. There's, you know, joy and sadness. There's all this stuff that goes into being human and a human who happens to be an artist or a musician. Yeah. And I think more and more producers now tend to be working on their own in front of a screen. So their ability to relate to musicians and to relate to just other people becomes less and less. It was always why I actually, the remixer, well, when I started out, the guy who was the remixer was not invented. There was no such thing as the guy who, you know, and in fact, I think Tom Lord Algy was one of the very first ones where, where Jerry Harrison would book him to remix the album before he even recorded it. Because before that, 
the guy who was brought in to remix the album, it was always because the album didn't sound good enough from the original producer. But then all of a sudden, you have someone booking that guy, sort of preempting the A&R man saying, you need to remix this album. It was very clever. But, but those guys who remixed, for them, literally by definition... Having other people in the studio with them will make their job harder. Right. 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 But for you, you've said that you use your ears versus using your eyes, because if someone is staring at a computer screen to make music, they're not observing what is going on with the human beings in the room. Yeah. They sometimes miss by using your eyes more than, well, it's not using your eyes more than your ears, but but using your eyes in conjunction with your ears, maybe you miss something because it's quicker to see it. You know, I mean, so many engineers, I've said, I can't, I've said, I can't hear the, where's that guitar? I said, I can't hear it. They go, no, it's there. Look. <laughs> I go, yeah, but I can't hear it. And they go, hang on, let me, and then they solo it on the screen and go, yeah, you're right. It's not there because there's some plug-in that's not working or something like that. There definitely are drawbacks of staring at a screen. You know, I, I read that you said you didn't get into music to be a typist, which I thought yeah. was brilliant because there's something about standing in a live room with live musicians and playing. Oh, it's the best feeling. And it's a pity. Well, look, I don't know, but you look at the sort of numbers on Spotify and you look at the percentage of plays that are not new music i think it's 68 percent of spotify is, is records that are not newly made i read that the other day and it really made me think that perhaps records made just by you know it's a lot cheaper just being made by a singular person what makes great music might be interaction of people an interaction of musicians who said i think it was was it steely dan who said the the sum is great. The whole is greater than the sum of its parts. They said that on the back of one of their scenes. One band, the band like that. Mm -hmm. You know, but Steely Dan were considered the technical, amazing technical thing. But that was just musicians playing together and going take after take to improve the quality of their music. Let's go back to you're 17 years old. You get the gig in the studio as a T-boy. How does that lead to engineering sessions and how does that lead to you producing your own records? Just luck. It was luck, me getting that job in the first place. But then it was enthusiasm that kept me in the job when I should have been fired, when my exam results came through and I didn't have what was required, but no one ever asked me for them. Okay, the studio I was in, it was the last studio in the world that had a separate machine room. It was like you had the control room where the mixer was, you had a separate machine room where I was sitting, pressing the 24 track. So, of course, I was never allowed. I always had to be at my station because there was no way the engineer could actually start the tape machine without me pressing the buttons. So I was never allowed into the control room. I could hear the music. I had a little speaker from a microphone in the control room that I could hear the bleed from the speakers. And basically... The engineer would go, OK, record on track 17. So I would record on track 17. And then if they wanted to do the second verse again, they would go, OK, go back 
10 seconds before the second verse. So I'd go and I would press play and he would say press and I would punch in. You know, it was a it was a Neanderthal way of making records. But I learned to hear all the time because I was going, maybe maybe they want to do the second verse again. So I would always like try and do more than the job. More than the job needed. I tried to be great at it. So there was a band called Ultravox who were I found that Nick wanted to do demos because I was in this separate room. I never learned how to do the engineering. So on weekends, we could take our own projects in to try and to learn how to engineer. And I did demos with this band called Ultravox. Um, it was the early version of Ultravox. Before Midyear. Uh, before Midyear with a great singer called John Fox. They were a bit like Roxy Music. And in fact, they signed to Island Records on the back of my demos. And the A&R man said, well, who do you want to produce your album? They said, well, we love working with Steve. And they go, well, we don't know this guy, Steve. You need someone else. And they said, well, we like, we love Roxy Music. They said, oh, well, you know, they're on Island. We can, we'll get Brian Eno. So my first ever production credit was produced by Brian Eno, Ultravox, and Steve Lillywhite. Uh, and of course, if you, if you know Brian, who is a lovely man, but he doesn't spend his life in the studio. He comes in and is Brian. And in fact, that was the first time I met him. The second time I met Brian, you know, was on the Joshua Tree when I came in to, to take over a handful of songs from him. And But no, he's a lovely man, Brian, you know, but that was it's, my first record. I mean, it's funny. You talk about jumping all over the place, but yeah. you just reminded me that one thing I noticed as I was listening to some of your music getting ready for tonight is there's certain other legendary producer names that just keep coming up with your work. Brian's one of them. Flood is another one. Hugh Padgham is another one. Daniel Lanois is another one. And the five of you, your paths have crossed back and forth for, you know, over 45 years now. Yes. Great guys. All great guys. Yeah, yeah. Everyone's nice. So you're, you're producing Ultravox. They get a record deal. Yeah. And then working deal. with Ultravox, then you somehow stumble on a post-New York Dolls, Johnny Thunders. Yes. Well, Johnny Thunders decides to move to London after the New York Dolls with a band called The Heartbreakers. He releases an album called LAMF, called Like a Motherfucker. And he was living in London and this album came out and it did okay, but everyone thought that it didn't sound very good. That was the thing. And I just knew Johnny through my roommate and Johnny used to come round and then Johnny was going to do a solo album. I said, I'll do your solo. I'll get you sounding better, Johnny. So I worked with Johnny Thunders and did his first solo album called So Alone. This album, it was fantastic. We put together an amazing array of musicians from Stevie Marriott to Phil Linnett from Thin Lizzy to Sex Pistols, Steve Jones and Paul Cook and a band called The Only Ones, who were a seminal punk band. And this album was definitely a critic's favourite. And very... <laughs> my daughter, who is so cool, when she was 17, she said, Dad, I know you're a producer. Can you tell me some songs that you did? So I went through some of the big ones, you know, and she said, I want to hear it. And I did all that. And then at the very end, I said, oh, just listen to this song called You Can't Put Your Arms Around the Memory by Johnny Thunders. 
One of the greatest titles ever, by the way. You can't put your arms around a memory. A couple of weeks later, I spoke to her and I said, did you listen to any of those songs that I told you? And she says, yeah, not really my thing, but I love that Johnny Thunders one. Wow. And I went, oh, shit. In my daughter's eyes, it was all downhill from my very <laughs> first record. <laughs> but during the making of that album, the manager of a band called Susie and the Banshees came to the studio and he said, we've just signed to Polydor. I went, I know you're going to be huge because you're on the front page of NME and you haven't made a record yet. He said, yeah, but we've just recorded our first single. We don't like how it sounds. And some American guy, I still, I don't know who it was, but it was Polydor had put some top guy in with them and they hated it. And he said, but I like this Johnny Thunders record. Can you do our first single again? That was Hong Kong Garden? Hong Kong Garden. Now, I knew that if I could make a record that the band approved with the record label, then it would be released and it would be a hit. And I was right. We did a great, I mean, I listened to it the other day and it still sounds really good. record and all of a sudden i had a hit now for me it started to become easy then because once you've had a hit they start calling you yes but i can then choose the ones i want i can raise my my quality control to such that i can be a an a and r man within my production thing you know and 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 i'm not slagging a and r men off over the years but but some of them are so small-minded that you know if the moment i had success with one style of music i would always be offered all these inferior bands in that same style it's like oh steve lillywhite did you too well he should do the alarm you know and <laughs> as much as i love the oh, alarm or mike peters man oh i love mike peters. <laughs> <laughs> I think Mike Peters has asked me to produce every alarm. <laughs> he's a lovely man. I know him very well. But, you know, it's like, no, I want to use my success. You know, so I would go off and do Joan Armour trading, you know, and XTC. And for me, punk rock was an attitude rather than a musical style. Because as a musical art form, it was limited. And I wanted to be able to have, I wanted to be in this game for life. I read something that I loved where you said that who better as a rookie record producer to work on than punk rock bands who were just starting out who didn't know how to play their instruments because they wouldn't know that you didn't know what you were doing. Exactly. It was all attitude. In those days, I wouldn't let a guitar player bend any notes because... That was what Pink Floyd did, and that was not us. Now, it wasn't of course, punk rock. It wasn't punk rock. It wasn't skinny white boys, you know. One thing that I found really interesting was sometimes that certain things happen that are out of your control. Yeah. You know, like 
the whole journey of you beginning to work with you too is so tied in to Ian Curtis and Joy Division and Martin Hannett. And had Ian Curtis not committed suicide, Martin Hannett, who produced the first U2 single, go into a period of mourning where he couldn't, he was so depressed that he couldn't produce the band, you were the second one on the list. I was the second one on their list. Now, the timing of that story is a little bit... I'll tell the story as it was. Yeah, it's true. But Ian Curtis, when he committed suicide, Martin Hannett, who the band were very happy, he produced a song called 11 O'Clock TikTok, which was their first single on Ireland. And I was lucky enough to be on their list. And it was a very short list because I don't think they really knew much about producers. But I went over to Ireland and I went to see a gig. I was met by Mr. McGuinness at the airport which I absolute island in those days, I really thought I would be met by a guy on a tractor with, <laughs> with straw in his ears, you know. But it was like, hello, Steve, Paul McGuinness here. English voice, which I still haven't worked out where he got his English accent. I think he went to college in England. But no, he was one of those great managers who would never, ever come into the studio. Funny enough, him and Corin Capshaw were my two favourite managers because it's like, okay, you do the art and I'll do the selling. Real businessmen. Yeah. They left the art to the artist. Left the art to the artist and never questioned the artist. If Bono said to Paul McGuinness, I want a lemon, Paul McGuinness's job was to say, how big? I mean, it was a spinal tap moment. And I think <laughs> Bono probably doesn't want to remember <laughs> the whole shenanigans of what was the band coming out of a lemon. So when you first saw them play in Dublin... Were you able to look at them in this small club as teenagers playing, you know, a gig and say, yeah, I imagine what this can be if recorded correctly? Yeah, for me, this is the old school way of doing it. I can listen to a band's albums and they give me no clue as to how I would make an album with them because I've got no backstory on the recording of that. I don't know how it was done, but if I see a band play live them when they are not thinking and not analyzing what they're doing, I'm seeing them when they're just being. And when someone is just being, I can then understand that, and I love it, I need to get them in that position in the studio. I need to set the scene so they are not worried that this is the most important thing in their life. They're not even thinking about that. They're thinking about, wow, this is great. I'm enjoying it. And part of my theory of that is that I never, ever call out my team in front of the artist. Because all of a sudden, if I call out the assistants, and I know a lot of producers who love to make that drama, this machine is quarter of a dB not lined up. You know, and they like to make that play in front of the artist to show their ego. But for me, I know that if I do that, the artist will go, Steve's worried. I wonder if he's worried about our music. And they shrink and they become smaller and they cannot be the best that they need to be when they are doing this album. It's like going into a boxing match. It's psychology, again. Yes, you have to be at your, at your peak fitness when you go into that ring but you also need 
to be completely relaxed. It's right. this dichotomy of being confident but not over cocky and of being relaxed but ready to go. Right. If your corner man in a boxing ring is like, oh, I'm worried, you're going to be worried. But if your corner man is like, you got this guy, you know, yeah, maybe I do. Yeah. And obviously, you know, a boxing match is only 40 minutes. An album is, you know, <laughs> two months. So you also what you learn and what I think, because I was in studios from 17 years old, I, I sort of understood the idea of cutting off the mistake. Because people always say to me, yeah, but what if, you know, you're a nice guy, Steve, but what if you really have a problem and you have to deal with a problem, which, of course, there's always problems during recording. But what I like to try and think I can do is to see the problem before it becomes too big a problem. And dealing with it instead of just letting it grow, because I, Lucian Grange, who is like, fantastic, was my boss when I had an A&R job in England. He would say of, of himself, he would say, Steve, you're shit. I am an eagle looking down on the pitch. Everything is a football analogy with him, soccer analogy. He says, you're on the pitch. You're dealing with it day to day. He says, I'm an eagle. I'm floating above and I can see everything. That's the sort of thing that you want to be able to do, is to be able to to view the whole situation, which, you know, maybe an A&R man can do that, can give a producer that sort of, can be the, that part of, of maybe a producer who is not, who doesn't have the experience for knowing the problems before it comes. I don't know. But I had an inherent thing of being able to see the problems in a lot of cases, in a lot of cases not. What did you think when you heard I Will Follow for the first time? I didn't think it was a hit, but then again, I didn't think New Year's Day was a hit. I mean, when we did the third album, New Year's Day was the single, and it was like, well, it's just another song on the album. I mean, you're talking about war with New Year's Day and Sunday Bloody Sunday and Two Hearts yeah. Beat as One. I mean, some of the greatest rock records ever made. Yeah, but I didn't. You know, you're just doing it. You know, you do hear a lot of producers say, oh, they're all my children. I don't know the difference between any of them. And, and that's, there's an element of that. But, you know, I don't see music as a government grant. I live in the real world. One of the reasons I was brought in on U2 was that Brian Eno and Danny Lanois were sort of tilting it too much towards the art. And it needed to be brought back a little bit to the commerce. You were there, you know, really their first producer. Forget about, you know, Martin for one second. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But those records were rock records, and there was the spirit of a band playing in that Dublin bar when you saw them that you were able to capture on those records. Of course they were going to call you to, to relive that when those guys were pushing them a little too far left. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I, I was very proud of the Before you two, there had pretty much had been Thin Lizzy, Boomtown Rats, a guy called Rory Gallagher. You're talking about Irish bands. Irish bands yeah. who, who had become successful outside of Ireland. But they'd all gone to London to make their records. You two wanted to record in Dublin. So I had the problem of trying to get the sound I wanted in a studio that was basically made for recording traditional Irish folk. Basically, it was the deadest sounding room you could hear. 
But luckily, when you walked in to Windmill Lane, where the receptionist sat, was this sort of stone area where she sat. And I said to the studio manager, oh, I want to do the drums out here because it was a lot more echoey, you know, and a lot more where you listen to the sound of that. You, you hear the sound of the room and I wanted the room sound. And the studio manager said, are you smoking crack? That's where the receptionist is. I said, well, what time does the receptionist leave? And he said, well, she leaves at six o'clock because this was the day when no mobile phones or if anyone in the building needed a call, it came in through her and she put you through, you know, maybe you had a direct line in your office if you were the boss, but mainly it went through the receptionist. So I said, well, look, at six o'clock, we'll set the drums up. At which point, Larry Mullen Jr., the drummer, his dad said he's 17 because he was worried about his son coming home late. So oh, these were kids. The, the YouTube guys, were, they were teenagers. They were teenagers. I was 20, uh, 1979, I was 24. And the five-year age gap, which I'm five years older almost to the day to Adam Clayton, the five-year age gap at that time was huge. I mean, I remember sitting at the desk and like doing my nodding and stuff, and I hear a little noise behind me. All four of them are sitting on the couch. I turned round to look. You know, you were, you they, were the grown-up in the room. I was the grown-up in the room. And funnily enough, even now to this day, they still see me as the grown-up in the room. It's quite weird. You know, it's like if Bill Gates went back to his high school reunion, he would become the nerd. Well, he's the nerd anyway. But, you know, <laughs> he wouldn't be Bill Gates the billionaire. He would be the... And the guy who's now a trash guy, you know, like the bin man, who was the Jack the Lad, he would probably be like, oh, look at Bill Gates. <laughs> your, your work with you 2 obviously has spanned decades. It's won you multiple Grammy Awards, including Producer of the Year in 2005, Record of the Year for Beautiful Day in 2000, Best Rock Album and Album of the Year for How to Dismantle an Atomic Bomb in 2005. The recordings are iconic. The band, you've become their go-to guy decade after decade after decade. But there's so many other iconic artists that you've worked with. Just think about the personalities. You know, I'm going to roll off some names here. And just the personalities of these people, Andy Partridge, David Byrne, Peter Gabriel, Dave Matthews, Morrissey, Shane McGowan. I mean, you could like... This is, you know, a movie Jared on a Leto. movie on a movie. Who? Jared, Jared Leto. Jared Leto, 30 Seconds to Mars, of course. You know, and when you think about, yeah, these records are great, but these are very, very iconic personalities as yeah. well. You know, is there a through line with all these guys and how you approach the work when you're working with people who are so iconically artistic? Well, for me, I'm at my worst. And I will not do the record if someone says, I'll do whatever you want, Steve. That, for me, is a red flag. I don't want, I don't know what I want. I'm not a fucking artist. But if you say to me, Steve, I've got 10 ideas. I say, okay, give me your 10 ideas. That one, shit. That one, I like that little bit. Keep that. Okay, next idea. Ooh, I like that bit. Why don't you put idea two and idea three together? But slow it, then, then we'll slow it. I'm not a shipbuilder. I've said that before. I'm the captain of the ship, but I'm not a shipbuilder. I help decorate it 
and I help sail it safely to port. But I'm not a shipbuilder. I'm a musician, but I've never written a song in my life because I don't want to write shitty songs. I know that I'm not. <laughs> What's the point? I'd much rather be as good as I can be. And also, I'm not like your Rick Rubins who can do five albums a week. You know, five different artists and go every day. It's an incredible skill. That's a skill I've always... I'm a micromanager. I absolutely know... You know, it's funny. Back in the day when you used to have track sheets. You remember track sheets? Of course. Like you, you have yeah. 24 track and yeah. you write on each yeah. sheet. You know, what's on each thing? You don't have that now. But I used to be able to put on one of my songs and not need to write on the mixing desk because I... You know, I had ingrained this sort of photographic thing of where everything was. So I was... There was no way you could do that five projects at a time. No, I couldn't. I'm not clever enough. <laughs> yeah, and I should have franchised myself out. That would have been a good idea. You know what I'd love to do is I'd love to do like almost like a lightning round. I'd love to call out a couple of projects or some artists that you've worked with. Oh, and just give great. me the first thing that comes to mind, because some of these are such iconic artists and you made such iconic recordings. Are you game? Let's go, Pete. Let's go. We talked about you two. You mentioned yeah. XTC. You got to tell us an XTC story. Andy Partridge, an absolute genius, probably pound for pound, probably as good as Lee Mavers from the Lars. Right. Uh, if you remember the Lars, they only made one album and you produced it. I produced it. Yeah. There she goes was their hit. But he was like probably pound for pound. One of the greatest artists I've ever worked with. He just fucked it up because talent is only a small part of it. Bono's not in the top five talented people I've ever worked with, but he is number one driven. So Andy Partridge, he is a genius, absolute genius. But that genius can turn. And I think when he stopped going on the road was when he stopped being quite the genius. And it's such a pity because he has a little chip on his shoulder now about how he isn't living in a mansion and and Sting is. Interesting. <laughs> but, you know, if you don't go on the road, then that's what you, you know. Right. Uh, but, Bono but, will tell you that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> let me, let me keep, let me keep going. Yeah, yeah, keep going. Sorry. Peter Gabriel. Peter Gabriel, Stan Laurel. <laughs> That's Peter Gabriel. I mean, he reminded me of a little vague, but absolutely wanted things that were not the norm and fearless in his vagueness. Well, the record you know. that you made together, Peter Gabriel three, also known as Melt, he told you when he was interviewing you to make the record that he wanted to make a record without symbols. No symbols. And for me, it was like, oh, my God, I love that idea because I had been experimenting with bands like Psychedelic Furs and Susie and the Banshees with a lot of ambient miking. But whenever the drummer hit the symbols, it just oh, crunched the sound too much. It was not good sonically. And I wasn't in a position, and I, of course, on some songs I would overdub cymbals, but when Peter said this, I didn't... You see, for me, a limitation in art can be a fucking great thing. So that limitation of no cymbals suddenly made us think in a more creative way. Like, there was a band called Guster, 
I love Guster. I did an album called Lost and Gone Forever. It was brilliant. All their producers up to that point had said, well, you don't have a drummer. It's bongos and two acoustic guitars. But when I saw them live with that, it was so fucking powerful that I thought my job is to turn that into a record. And I did. I made an album with no drum kit. And it's still my other kids' favorite album. <laughs> <laughs> I have many kids. <laughs> but, you know, I also found it interesting. One of your children, Jamie, used to manage Ellie Goulding. So it's like all in the family, right? And I had nothing to do with that. My dad helped me. I never helped Jamie. He basically saw Ellie Goulding in a club, a folk club, playing folk songs and basically guided her and, and, and helped make her the disco diva she was. for. Amazing. Her. One more thing about the Peter Gabriel record you make. Yes. There are a lot of people who credit that album with the creation of gated reverb on the drum sound. And is that something that you think is accurate? Well, it's not gated reverb. Other people used gated reverb. What we used was a gated live sound, a gated room sound. What it was was Studios 2 in the townhouse where we recorded it. It was a small... Studio 1 was the main studio. Studio 2 was the small one at the back. But they just had this stone room in there. But no one had utilized this stone room as anything in any way until I went in there... And luckily, Hugh Padgham was a fantastic engineer. But it was a combination of Peter saying no cymbals, me pushing Hugh to use the compression that was in the talkback mic, and serendipity. You know, I mean, certainly without any of us, it would not have been invented. But I could say that certainly, you know, if you know Hugh, he's a wonderful guy, but he's not a risk taker. If you want a safe pair of hands, Padgham is fantastic. But I'm much more like, like up and, you know, I'm the risk taker. So I was. The question is obviously that gated drum effect sound, yes. became a, a hallmark of Phil Collins. Yeah, it you know, can, and it Phil, Phil Collins played on the Peter Gabriel album. Right. And he basically loved the sound and what took Peter sort of months of Stan Laurelisms, <laughs> of questioning himself and therapy and all that stuff. What took him months, in came little jolly chap Phil Collins, whistling, going, oh, I'll have a bit of that, I'll have a bit of that. Boom, 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 I can feel it coming. And it was easy for him. But without the path that was before him, he had no idea. He was very clever. He said, I'll, I'll have some of that. There's copyright on songwriting, but, you know, there's not really a copyright on a sound. Very clever. And Hugh Padgham went off to work with Phil, right? Yes. And yeah, because Hugh went, well, I don't need Lily White. I can just do it, <laughs> I can just do it with um, I can just do it with you, which is great. You know, I was very pleased for him. Let's keep going in our lightning round here. Talk about big country. Big country. Well, big country where I come from, were considered a rock band. I know in America, and it was basically due to the fact that the name of the band and the big hit was the same, and they had a fucking stupid music video of them riding four-by-fours a la monkeys. <laughs> you know, 
it put them like as a pop band. But in the UK, they were much more considered alongside U2 and Simple Minds and Echo and the Bunnymen as a new wave alternative rock band. They were great. I mean, he was not the best singer in the world, but he was good enough. And it was very sad because he committed suicide, uh, Stuart Adamson. And it was sad that he, I spoke to him a month before he died. And he said, Steve, I'm an alcoholic. I realize now I can't drink. But he then forgot. And he got drunk, got on a plane to Hawaii, went into a hotel room and committed suicide. Oh, it was, it was so one of us. So but sad. then again, now I can understand suicide a bit more. At the time, because my first wife, Kirsty, had died. She didn't want to die. And I always thought suicide was, as we all know, and it's been said many times, the only person who isn't affected by suicide is the person who does it. Right. So it's very much a coward's way out. But there you go. A lot of people die without wanting to. And Well, the records that you made with Big Country yeah, are, are they, fantastic. They were, they were pretty good. And yeah, hit well, me up with another one. Okay, another one coming up. Talking Heads and David Byrne. David Byrne. David Byrne was, as Tina Weymouth used to say, well, David Byrne, he, his parents never criticized anything he did. <laughs> so he thinks that everything he does is great. And, uh, <laughs> and there is an element of fearlessness about David Byrne. One thing, you know, there's two sorts of lyric writers, singers, singers stroke lyric writers. There's the type who write out the words before they do it, and they just come in and sing them. Chris Cornell comes to mind. He was a, always had his lyrics written. Elvis Costello is one of those, you know. But on the other side of the fence, you've got Bono, you've got David Byrne and Dave Matthews. They all sing phonetically and then turn those phonetics into lyrics. In Bono's case, in a very painstaking, slow way sometimes, because they have to make sense. But with David Byrne, he didn't really mind if they didn't make sense, as thus stopped making sense. For him, he would turn his... Okay, the album I did... Naked. Naked. We would just do the backing tracks, and it was like literally song number one, song number two, song number three. They all came from jam sessions, right? And it would be section A, section B, then section A, and they would play... And then at the end of the 10 song recording, one a day, Davis wanted to do vocals, just like scat vocals. But he says, I don't want to hear it before I do it. So he goes out of the room. I get the headphones sounding good. I get the balance right for his headphones. And uh, I said, OK, David, come in. He comes in and I put it on and he's up going, Wayne! And he would do this on every, like, three or four songs and then have a break. And then he would do three takes on each song. And then he would take, we would actually give him reel-to-reels. He would take them home. And when we got to New York to do the vocals, he would have pretty much lyrics out of what he had scattered. Wow. And he didn't mind. I mean, on some lines, he would have two or three alternates he would put there and ask me, which one do you think is better? And I go, oh, that one. You know, <laughs> but he didn't, he didn't mind which one it was. For him, it didn't necessarily need to make sense. And 
And with Dave Matthews, it doesn't necessarily need to make sense. I mean, a little bit more with Dave Matthews. And with Bono, 100%. I mean, Bono, I've been with Bono where literally the tense of a word has been discussed for about three hours. Yes, Bono, just fucking go and sing. <laughs> you know, but he's Irish. And Irish, it's all about the spoken word. And all right, let me keep going here because the list is long. Morrissey. Morrissey. Oh, my God. Morrissey is fearless. Absolutely fearless. Very quick story about Morrissey, which I actually do in my one man show. So when you see me after COVID come to your town, you people there, get a ticket for my one man show. It's called Big Ears. It's me telling stories. But very quick story here, Pete, with Morrissey. So we're in the studio and a very well-known American manager. He doesn't have a manager. Very well-known American manager is flying over from Los Angeles purely for the focus of meeting Morrissey. Now, this guy was managing George Michael during that six-month period when George Michael was probably the biggest artist in the world. There was a six-month period when George Michael was as big as they come. So this guy flew to England. He had a limo. We were all, like, preparing and everything for his arrival. Just before he came, Morrissey was in his room. He arrived to the studio chauffeur-driven limousine from Heathrow Airport out to Hook End Manor, the studio. Where's Morrissey? Where's Morrissey? Oh, he's not here. Oh, anyway, me being the host, said, come in, come in. Invited him into the studio and we sit down and, hi, how's it going? How's LA? How's the way? Oh, this is a night, you know, just chit-chat. And I said, we can't seem to see Morrissey. Um, anyway, do you want to hear some, you know, some roughs? They're not there yet, but I think you'll like them. This is, <laughs> this is going to be a good album. So we play him some rough mixes and they did. They sounded good. And I can see him like starting to work out how he was going to turn Morrissey into the next George Michael. But anyway, after the song's finish, we just sit there and a bit more chit chat. And But then he starts going, well, this is like, where's Morrissey? Can anyone see Morrissey? Can't find him anywhere. Eventually, it's, you know, he's, he's a busy man. L.A. is just getting up now. He needs to at least be on the phone and his hotel room before he flies back. He starts getting a bit pissed off. He's come all this way. Anyway, he eventually leaves. And it's all gone a little bit sour. And it's like, oh, shit. Five minutes later, the door opens. Has he gone? (laughs) Where the fuck were you? He goes, I saw him get out of the car and I didn't like his haircut. Literally, he did not like his haircut. And it didn't matter that he was managing the biggest artist at the time, who was a solo artist like Morrissey. You know, it was a great fit. Didn't like his haircut. So he went to the pub and waited and waited until this man left. That's how fearless Morrissey is. But he's a very gentle person and a man of few words and purely just a weirdo. I mean, in the great create, you know, Great artistic sense. Well, I think you have to be a little weird to create such great art. Oh, if a double-decker bus crashes into us tonight by your side, the pleasure... Yeah, I mean, one of the greatest love songs ever written with that lyric. Yes. Crazy. That's what I love. But he's also a thief. You know, he does steal his lyrics from many sources. Not the only one, but let's keep going. 
you mentioned them earlier, but we couldn't get through this interview without asking you about your experience with the Rolling Stones. Okay, Mick Jagger, a nice bunch of blokes. That was how he was described to me by, by Keith. Basically, <laughs> Mick Jagger is a nice bunch of blokes. He can be the upper-class Englishman who goes to the cricket and does that. He can be the street Londoner. He can be the American. He can be anything. We don't really know who he is. He hides behind this big thing. I got the stones when they were not very good. But I got a glimpse occasionally of how... Okay, I'll tell you a very quick story about the psychology. I remember they were not very good musicians. You know, it was all about feel. It wasn't about the pocket necessarily. And, and I said to Bill Wyman one day, oh, can you do your bass again? It's a bit out of time. And he looked at me like, you're questioning my, you know. And he got a bit weird. I went, oh, no, 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 it's okay. Leave it. And then I suddenly realized I presented it wrong. Next time I said, Bill, I think the sound of the bass is not as good as I could get it. He goes, oh, I'll do it again for you. Then. <laughs> no. When it becomes your error, it's fine. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And, and, and I, learned that I learned a lot from that. You know, I had a couple of moments. It, Harlem Shuffle was a pretty good cover version. And another song called One Hit to the Body was okay, but... It's almost like an impossible task for you because the band were not speaking with each other. And you had to be a diplomat in the studio and become the conduit of thought and ideas yes. between band members. It was a difficult task, but a real man doesn't turn down the Rolling Stones. Of course not. So in a way, I learned much more from them than they learned from me. That's the great thing. You know, you learn from all your artists and, and hopefully you can pass on something to them couple more to go before we wind up here. You're talking about personalities. Talk about Shane McGowan and the Pogues. Okay, the Pogues, Shane is just a fantastic... I mean, he's a lyric writer. You know, he's a poet. He brings his lyrics in. They're pretty much finished. Where I got him when his addiction was not as... I mean, other than the fact his teeth made his diction not so good... I got him at a pretty good time. And the band were great, as long as you didn't record them too late in the day, because they would always be drunk. And I wanted the album to have the swagger, but not the sloppiness of a drunken band. You know, your album with the Pogues includes one of the great holiday songs of all time. It's a song called Fairy Tale of New York. It's a duet between the Pogues and Kirsty, who you mentioned earlier. And it's the most played Christmas song of the 21st century in the UK. I don't even know if you knew that. But I have always loved that song. In fact, one of our artists on Atlantic just covered it, Vance Joy. It's going to come out for this Christmas season. And it's a great stripped down acoustic version of that song. What a brilliant, brilliant record. But Well, let me just tell you, listen to the Bon Jovi version, which is shit. <laughs> John Bon Jovi, look, I have to say, John Bon Jovi, no, you should. It was so bad that he actually disengaged the comment section on nice. YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> and I think I was quoted as saying how bad it was. But no, this song is a duet. And it, you say the most played Christmas song of the 21st century. Well, it came Correct. out in the 20th century. Yeah, but I mean, in, this is a song that just picks up speed every holiday. 
Yeah. Because it paints such a vivid picture. I could have been someone. Well, so could anyone. You took my dreams from me when I first found you. I kept them with me, babe. I put them with my own. Can't make it all alone. I built my dreams around you. You know, you talk about Shane as a poet, you know, he's painting poetry. And what I didn't know before prepping and getting ready for today is that Elvis Costello, who had produced the Pogues, fell out with the band, ran off with their bass player, who would have normally sung the female part on Fairy Tale of New York. You know, Kirsty's vocal is one of the best vocals I've ever recorded. I mean, it's so deceptively difficult to get the nuance and everything of what she did right, because it's got all these little twinkles and twiddles and stuff. I spent a whole day with her on the vocals, and they never sung it together in the studio, but that's par for the course for duets. But it's become iconic in in the UK, and it's slowly now spreading across to the States. When I look at the Spotify charts on Christmas week, it's always in the top three in the UK. And in America, it's now sort of top 100. So people are beginning to, because it's, you know, you can just play it for the first time and people go, okay, that's okay. But it does definitely grow on you and it becomes, and in the UK, it's just, when people hear it, it's Christmas. Yes. There's no question, it's the beginning of Christmas. Look, to make a record that is a perennial, you know, is a great thing. But I think you're doing yourself a little bit of a disservice because it's a great song, but you took that song and turned it into a great iconic record. Yeah, because of the version that Elvis Costello produced is around somewhere. And it's just, you know, it's the same song, but it just is not, it would never have been timeless. I think producing can help make a timeless song, a timeless record. Uh, Of course. And I think people are beginning to understand that now. I mean, you could cover Bohemian Rhapsody, but who would ever want to listen to any version other than Queen's? Right. No one would ever want to hear it because that is the version of that song. Right. Well, that's that song and record coming together as one, you know, for sure. Is there, Steve, is there any one of your career of artists that you've worked with that I haven't mentioned that you want to tell the story about? Okay. Okay. Jared Leto. Jared Leto is my one thing I was always trying to do with him was to make him think of making records as not like making a movie because for him making a movie, there is nothing left to chance making a movie. Someone puts that box of tissues on that table because that helps the narrative of the story because it, or, you know, everything. There is nothing not artificial. There's nothing that's just done because it's done. And I think with records, and I've seen him sing with his acoustic guitar, just like without thinking. And I'm going, there's an element of your voice that you never have on your records. 
just singing with acoustic. It's brilliant. I mean, he is absolutely. But then when he goes in to do the vocal, he like, I have to do it one line at a time. Well, he's playing a part. He's playing a part. That's exactly it. Because he likes to think he's a musician more than an actor, because I think that. But he's an actor as well. You right. know, and he thinks like that. Well, as we wrap up here, just a couple of final thoughts. One is not only have you had this incredible career making and creating and producing these iconic records, but you also sat on my side of the desk. You were head of A&R for a while at Columbia. You worked at Universal UK as MD. What did you learn from that experience that you took with you either for better or for worse? Yeah. What I didn't understand when I was an A&R person was that some problems are a lot bigger than others. I would make everything the same. Instead of going, I have a staff to do things, I would try and do everything and I would fail. You know, I mean, I, I wasn't a complete failure, but I wasn't a great fit for being an A&R person because I didn't, you know, if I thought of just the big picture, and like, as I said, Lucian sees himself as an eagle above the football field, and the football field meaning the music business. Everyone else in the music business is on the ground, playing it, looking at it along that way. But if you're above it and you're looking down on it, that way you get your unique perspective. I have that in the studio. I don't have that in an office. With a staff of people. And that was my one, yeah, it was a bit of a eye-opener. And honestly, and part of that, I started to get involved, you know, I would go to meetings with accountants. And Lucian would say to me, why are you doing it? He said, because isn't that what the, bo- you know, I'm supposed to be doing that. He goes, well, not if you don't want to. <laughs> I haven't got you here to sit in and accounting meetings. But, you know, I would make my mind full up with everything thinking that that was my job because right. I was the managing director. Right, right. And of course, Lucian wanted me to be Steve Lillywhite. The, of course. The, the overall creative person. So final question for you. What is one piece of advice that you would give to the younger generation who want to do what you do? My thing that I've always said is that there is no winning. There is only not losing. Meaning that if you have a number one record, it doesn't mean anything. All it means is that you're still in the game. And I think everyone who I'm talking to, yes, you at the back, everyone I'm talking to wants to be able to do this until they're old. Well, a lot of you won't. And a lot of the reasons you won't be doing it is because of complacency. And complacency is very easy once you get people patting you on the back and saying, oh, you got a number one record, you're the guy, you know, and all this, because there's many people want to climb along with you. But try and stay humble and try and keep that sense of wonder and joy that you had when you first walked in for your first interview. Oh, my God, I'm going to get a job in the music business. There's a wonder, there's a joy that you had. I still try to think I'm running about 80% on that. So treat it lightly, but also learn, but don't blindly follow someone. Just because I've said something 
I may have said something to you that may spark one little thing, and that's good enough. I mean, everyone has their mentors, but try and spread your mentors because no one is perfect. The people I know who are successful in this music business work in teams. They work with their fellow people. So work as a team. Pete is a great boss. Work together with him. Give him fucking hell because he deserves it. Thank you, Steve. Because he will listen to you. <laughs> he will listen to you. But I think the real takeaway from what you're saying is don't lose the joy. Because the minute, the minute that you lose the joy, it's just a job. And when it's just a job, it's not something that you're going to want to keep doing. Yeah, exactly. And you'll complain about it. And you'll moan. Now, look, I know some A&R men, and you know them very well, Pete, who've made their career out of moaning and being negative and saying, oh, it's no good, it's no good. You know, but for me, I think artists trust me more when I'm empathetic towards them. I'm not ingratiating, not arse-licking and saying, oh, you're the best guy, bro. Not like that. You know, treat them as people. Treat them as friends. They have insecurities the same as you do. Well, great advice. Thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you so much for having me. It's an well, honor. We'll see you soon. Thanks a lot. Bye. Steve Lillywhite for joining us this week. From his early days working with emerging punk bands to producing multi-platinum albums that have become cultural touchstones, there's no doubt that his legacy will continue to resonate for generations to come. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time for another episode of Rock and Roll High School. Rock and Roll High School is a presentation of Pure Tone Music in association with Warner Music. Produced by Pete Ganvard, with assistance from Craig Rosen, Ron Robinson, Joe Pomerico, Kelly Sayer, Chris Costello, Willie Fastino, Catherine Hoppy, Kayla Flores, Zach Kornhauser, and Rich Mahan. Please visit our website at rockschoolpodcast.com for more info on past and future shows. All rights reserved. Rock, 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 rock.